Well, amen. I think y'all were so into your fellowship time, you probably just didn't hear much of that. Good morning. That was from the Texas Country Boys. Y'all are still fellowshipping. I know. That video was from the Texas Country Boys. They recorded that when they were over in the Ukraine in Poland area. And uh, they're excited to be here next week, folks. They're going to be here next week with us for the Harvest Banquet. The Harvest Banquet starts at 5 o'clock. And then the Texas Country Boys will join us right in here at 6 p.m. So you want to be a part of that. It's going to be a great, great evening. And also, boy, y'all are really fellowshipping this morning. I can still hear you. I, I just want to let you know, out there in the foyer, we do have disposable pans for you to pick up and take with you to make your dish to bring it back, okay? So be sure to pick up your disposable pan. We just need sides and desserts. The uh, church is providing the meat and the dressing, and I just pray that you grab some stuff. I'm always look so forward to Harvest Banquet. It's such wonderful food and so many great cooks here in the church. And speaking of that, a lot of great cooks. Ladies, if you have a recipe that you want to put into the cookbook, be sure to do that, okay? Now, the next thing that's happening, got a lot of things happening next week. The next thing is that we need our Operation Christmas Child boxes returned next Sunday at the latest. You can return them anytime to the office during the week, but at the latest next Sunday. So be sure to get those Christmas boxes back in. And then the last announcement that I want to make to you is that next Sunday is Jana Mace's five-year anniversary here at Westgate, okay? That's right. It's going to be exciting. Now, what we, need to, what we need you to know is that at 845, right out there in the atrium, we're going to have a reception for her. We didn't want to tag it on to the, the Harvest Bank. We want to have something special just for her. So at 845, next Sunday morning, we're going to have a reception right out there for her. Be sure to be here and shower her with your, your love and your appreciating for all that she's done in these five years. We've seen a lot of great things that she's done and a lot, a lot that she brings to the team here at Westgate. All right? Now, if you're a guest with us, we are certainly glad that you're here. We, we want to welcome you. Um, you. There's a connection card there in the pew rack in front of you, and if you would fill that out, you can drop that in the, one of the offering boxes back in the atrium, or you can bring it by the welcome desk. We'd love for you to do that and just... Allow us to get to know you. We, we won't make any un, untold uh, calls on your house or anything, um, but we would love to know that your presence is here. So just let us know. Fill that form out. Now, as we continue with our service this morning, I want us to begin with the time of prayer as we remember our veterans. You know, we had Veterans Day just two days ago, and I'd like for us to just to spend a moment praying and thanking God for the sacrifices that uh, they all make. If you, if, you were, if you're a veteran, would you please stand? Thank you. We want to pray for you right now, okay? You, you may be seated. You don't have to keep standing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks today for our nation's veterans. We honor them for their faithful service in defending and preserving our freedom. 
We are grateful to those who served during times of peace. They were standing ready and bravely awaiting their call to duty. And we are grateful to those who served during times of unrest. They endured conflict and, and they bared the physical and spiritual wounds of war. God, we ask that you bless them. Heal their wounds and give them peace. We thank you, God, for all of our veterans, those of generations past and generations present. May we never forget what our country has asked of them and what they have given in return. And God, now as we come into your presence, we realize what you have done for us. The amazing gift that you have provided so that we could have eternal life through your precious son, Jesus. Thank you for that gift. May Jesus be glorified here in this place this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we join together to sing?
chapter 31 verse 3 it says I have loved you with an everlasting love God's love is greater than all of our sin let's sing about his love this morning the love of God is greater far than tongue or pain can ever tell To write the love of God above. 
again with just your voices. Oh, love of God.
And let's all stand together for the reading of God's word from Psalm 31. It says this, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. Jesus has won. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested, my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remained My orphan heart was given My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. For your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new now, life begins with. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had a law. 
Amen? Amen. God, we praise you today for the life-saving gift that you gave us. May you be glorified in this place. May our lives, as we live them out each day, bring honor and glory to your name. We ask it in the name of Jesus and the people of God said together, amen. You may be seated. Well, as all of these guys step off the stage, Warren, thank you for your leadership. Last week they were out of town, but Warren and Trish are celebrating their ninth anniversary of being here at Westgate, and we're thankful for you guys and your leadership. It's amazing. All of the things that have changed, you talk about the things that have changed with Jana. Uh, Jana got a new name, uh, and Warren and Trish picked up a daughter-in-law and a son-in-law, so they've had a lot going on. Good to have you guys here. But we're living in very tumultuous times. We've seen the display of missiles being tested from North Korea, the use of military weapons in Ukraine. The doomsday clock remains at 100 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been. But what what may surprise you that today in this sanctuary, each one of us possesses one of the most dangerous weapons ever known to man. Not only can it kill, but it can rob us of eternity. So I want you to take a moment to expose your concealed weapon by opening your wallet and pulling out some cash. Literally, I'd like for you to do that. Reveal your concealed weapon. Because today we're going to be talking about the danger of a dollar. And don't worry, I'm not going to take it. (laughs) But more importantly, are you willing for the Lord to take it. The danger of a dollar. In James chapter 5, James continues his discourse about problems that are threatening everyone's well-being. He is not into hyperbole. He's not into hypothetical conversation. There was a much more serious supply chain issue back then. So he wasn't wasting time with limited ink and parchment. He didn't know how much time he had left in his life So he wrote with tremendous urgency about the pressing eternal matters both then and now. Today we're going to see how brilliantly he gives us a warning filled with hope. It's found in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, if you'd turn there with me. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, 1884 in the Pew Bible, if you want to pull up, up that. What we want to note as we begin here is this is the first time that James is speaking directly to the rich. He's referred to them several times throughout the book, but he's speaking directly to them. Commentators seem to be a little bit confused as to whether or not he's speaking to rich within the church who are not acting as Christians, or is he speaking to the rich outside of the church, and there's good evidence for both angles. As we go through this and we hear these warnings, I want you to hear also the hope. Right from the beginning, to be filled with the hope that we do not have to do any of these things to get into the kingdom of God. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to do all of these things. We we, we live in a world in which we must always be working to prove ourselves. And we don't have to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to earn our keep. We do that through the grace of Christ. Let's read it together in James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, let's pray together because those are pretty harsh words. And if we're not careful, we'll miss what we need to hear today. So let's pray together. God, we, we do recognize just the, the, the passion by which James writes. He is so convinced of the difference that you make in life and so concerned when we take you off of the throne and we, we seek to find another way to, to seek meaning in life. God, how I pray that your word would speak to each one of us today, that we would not push it to the side and believe this must be a message for someone else. But Lord, we would seek to hear your spirit whisper into our ears what it is that we need to repent of, recognizing that we don't just repent of those things that seem so awful, but God, a repentance has changed. And every time we come to your word, we're reminded of your call for us to change. Just show us, Lord, what it is that you want us to do differently with our lives. Through your word, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week was indeed a very interesting week. The stock market had its biggest one-day gain since 2020. Mattress Mac won $75 million on bets he had wagered that the Astros would win the World Series. We learned that the two, richest men, two of the richest men in the world lost half of their net worth. Elon Musk lost $170 billion. Just to count that $1 at a time would take you $5,200 years. We also know that Mark Zuckerberg lost half of his income, but it would only take you about a thousand years to count how much money he had lost. And both guys are now terminating about several thousand employees. Last week also we saw America on the frenzy of buying Powerball tickets as it reached two billion dollars. One person won and roughly 100 million Americans were disappointed and saddened that they didn't win because half of the American population over the age of 18 plays the lottery. I had a friend who told me, asked me, first of all, if I had purchased my Powerball tickets. I said, I'd, I don't buy. He told me he'd just purchased several himself. So I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I won't buy one of the tickets and ruin your chances if you give me five million. He said, done deal, and I'll give $10 million to the church. That's the best way to play the lottery. I figure my chances of winning the lottery are about the same as being eaten by a shark and an alligator while simultaneously being struck by lightning. <laughs> Money is on everybody's mind. Always is. Whether we talk about it in church or not, always is. It's on everybody's mind. And it's a very quiet topic, but God's Word deals with it on a regular basis, and we see some very strong statements here. I think as we look at this passage, as I wrestle with what the commentators said, I, I, I believe that really what both are saying, that he's speaking to the rich that are outside of the church, meaning the kingdom of God, and he's speaking to those in the church who are also out of the kingdom of God, but think 
that they are. See, it's real easy for us to believe that all the bad things happen out there. And so let's pay attention to what he's saying. He, he may be referring back to, reverting back to James chapter 4, verse 13, the last chapter, in which talking about the rich that said, we're going to go off and we're going to make a profit. So there were rich people in the church. We don't know how many. Most of the people were destitute in the church. And he's spoken about the rich several times, but this time he bores in very deeply. And as we look at this message about the danger of a dollar, in which we find a hope in the midst of this warning, I want us to see a couple of things about the danger of a dollar. First of all, it doesn't last. James tells us that money doesn't last, wealth doesn't last, riches don't last. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, it says in verse 1, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Meaning you have all this money now, but it's not going to last. There's a day coming where everything is going to be miserable for you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Is James saying rich people are bad people? Not at all. He doesn't want anybody with money to feel like you are wrong, you're bad. As we said last week, we as Christians should be the most profitable people of all. We should do it in the best way to honor God. But he's not saying riches are evil, but the way that we manage them and the attitude that we have can be evil. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Many of you will remember Jack Whitaker who won the Powerball when it reached an enormous amount of money of $315 million in 2002. Ironically, he won it on Christmas night was the drawing that particular year. Whitaker was already a wealthy man before he played the Powerball lottery, but his life quickly took a downturn. It became a nightmare. He began to struggle with drinking and gambling, which is interesting, isn't it? If you had that much money, you would struggle with gambling, trying to get more. His wife left him. Several members of his family died tragically. He was arrested for driving under the influence as well as for assault and battery. He was wealthy before he won the lottery, but it's noted that by the time he died in June of 2020, he was destitute. After his daughter had died, he said, I wish I'd torn that ticket up. A man that won what many would love to have said, I wish it never happened. Very similar story just this last week out of India, in which a man suffering from all that happened after winning the lottery said, I wish that I'd never won. What does he say? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Why? Because you have money? No. Because you trust in your wealth and not trusting in Christ. Because your wealth will not last. Your riches have rotted. The word that he uses there, and, and wealthy people back then were identified as being wealthy by three things. Primarily, the food that they ate, because they could eat very lavishly. By the clothes that they wore, they wore a lot of different clothes, and they would have continuous wardrobe changes to impress people with what they wore, and with the precious metals that they had. So he says, your riches have rotted. It's to say that your food is just it's rotted. It's no longer useful. What you were depending on and saying that made you, made you valuable is gone. And your garments are moth-eaten. 
I'm wearing this shirt for a very particular reason today, then I want to show you a picture of me in this shirt and tell you a little bit of the backstory. Now, gotta love what a tennis ball will do up your sleeve, right? Thought you'd like that. I came home uh, last month after making some hospital rounds at night, and I was taking off my shirt, and I realized you really can't see it very well. I'm, I'm wearing it now, but the moth have just completely eaten out the underneath, and why moths eat at the armpits, that tells you something there too. <laughs> but I was walking around all day in the shirt, and it wasn't until I got home and realized that the shirt that I had not worn in a while had completely been ravaged by moths. And we think, that would never happen at our house. We have such a clean house. Believe me, my wife keeps our house spotless. And these moths that you don't see, we see mosquitoes flying around more often. You don't see the moths flying around, but, but there they are, quietly, silently, working away in your closet, taking away your riches. And that's what, what James is talking about here. Just like that, your riches can be gone. These, these rich people that would have all these different changes of clothes, and they, they put on these clothes that think they're going to impress people, and all of a sudden they, they see that they're all eaten out under the armpit or the collar or wherever it might be. Your gold and your silver have corroded him. And all of a sudden people say, wait a second, gold and silver, they don't corrode. But the way it's written in the original language is to say it's already corroded. And what James is saying is he's referencing the next era of life, the reality of heaven, that it won't be valuable there. All the money that you had here, it won't be valuable anymore. So it doesn't serve you any purpose this last week, I wrote down a phrase that I think is memorable as you think about this particular passage, and somebody's probably said it better than this, but the only things we'll hold in death are the things we trusted to God. The only things that we will hold in our hands when death overtakes us are the things that we trusted to God. So we see that James says, dollar danger it doesn't last. It's only for a season. The second thing is to see that it can, cor can cor corrode your soul. Look at verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. James is taking us to a courtroom now, and he's saying when we stand before God, and if we've trusted in our wealth, and we're going to see what wealth can do to you, if we've trusted in our wealth rather than trusting into God, that our wealth will stand as evidence against us in the judgment and will eat your flesh like fire. What is he saying? Is that dangerous to be rich? No. But if we trust in our riches and don't trust in Christ, we will stand before holy God and find that we are on the outside looking in he begins to explain what money can do to us. This is so important for us to hear. You have laid up treasure in the last days. We're living in the last days. The last days in Scripture is identified as that time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Every day that we live, we're one day closer to Christ's return or to our death. The grains of sand, they're slipping through. These are the last days, and they slip by very quickly. And he's saying, you're storing up your treasures for this time rather than for that time. And we remember, this is the brother of Jesus, and he remembers the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up for yourself treasures where? On earth, but treasures in heaven. He says, you're laying up treasures right here upon earth. The only time you'll benefit from them is right here. 
Behold, and this is where it really gets kind of dicey. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. We begin to see the arrogance creeping in to those with money where they trust in money. See, what would happen is the rich, because they were so powerful, people were dependent upon them for jobs. And so the day laborers would come to them, and they would work. But then the employer would begin to say, well, you drank more water than you should have, so I'm going to charge you for that. You took a little bit longer break than you should have earlier this morning. And I noted that you weren't working quite as hard as everyone else. So I'm not going to pay you today. Come back tomorrow. The book of Deuteronomy tells us that the day wage, the, the, wage the, the workers were supposed to be paid on a daily basis. Now, we can't really comprehend that as much in our society today. But they had to be paid daily because they depended upon that. They lived from day to day. That's why when Jesus would give us the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we don't comprehend that because we have bread in the pantry. We have bread at the grocery store. We can get whatever we needed. But they would day to day buy what they needed for the moment. And here were these rich in their arrogance saying, I'm better than you. I will do whatever I want to you and would withhold their earnings. You go back to Ezekiel chapter 16, if you recall reading that a couple of weeks ago in the, in the Bible reading plan. What were the sin of Sodom in Ezekiel chapter 16? Of arrogance, being overfed, and unconcerned about the needy and the poor. See, if we get absorbed in our wealth, we become arrogant, believing that we're better than other people and will take advantage of them. It doesn't happen to everybody, but when you trust in your wealth, it is a slope that you move towards. And then you see this next thing that happens is just the abuse of it. Listen to the people crying out. The wages are crying out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord of hosts. And this is where I want us to see a little bit. Are you still with me? Here, here's where you see a little bit of that hope filling in there. Because James does a masterful job of giving this harsh warning, but filling us with hope at the same time. Because he's speaking to people that have been cheated out of their wages. Here they are coming into church. They haven't been paid all week. And there are the rich in their royal robes and lavish meals, parading around, holding their wages. And here he says, those cries have reached the Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? We don't want to overlook some of these words. That is the same phrase, the same name that David used when he stood before Goliath. He said, you come with your spear and all of your arsenal, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord over all the armies of heaven. That's who hears the cry of the destitute. Don't give up. Don't believe that you have to go down a different path. God hears what you have to say. He's speaking to the brothers in Christ, the sisters in Christ, to say, we have the Lord of hosts as our advocate. Greed seeping in, believing. You've lived in this earth in luxury, just wanting more and more and more. Again, you think back about all of these, and the, the stories are rampant. I just used the one story of Jack Whitaker. You can find so many stories of people who have won the lottery. 
that have just destroyed their lives as greed seeps in. And you would think, how much is enough? But it's wanting more and more and more. It's called relative deprivation. You've all experienced it, in which you're feeling somewhat contented in your life, and then you see someone that has something a little bit more than you, and all of a sudden you're not as contented. Have you ever had this experience of driving around watching Christmas lights, which we'll, we'll do here in a few weeks? And you're, you're driving around, and you drive out of your neighborhood. It looks all right. And then you drive to the really nice neighborhoods, and you see lights in these incredible homes, and then you, you get back to, to your little tin can, and all of a sudden your house just doesn't feel as good as it once was, or, or those times in which someone invites you over to their house, and it's just like, it's like a palace. You come back home and you just begin to look at everything that's wrong about your house. It's called relative deprivation, in which we feel deprived by the relativity of what we see in other people's lives. And the same thing happens financially. You can be doing very well until you come across someone and you find out that they make a whole lot more than you do. And all of a sudden it feels like you are deprived. And that's when that greed seeps in, of wanting more and more. And that's what James is talking about. The greed here, they already have all this luxury, yet they hold the wages back from the laborers. Living in self-indulgence, it says. I think about Matthew, I mean, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. What a story that Jesus told. Interesting. It is oftentimes identified as a parable, but some people believe that it could actually be a story that Jesus was relating to, something that actually did happen. This rich man has everything that he could want. He's got so much stuff that he throws his food down. They would, they would literally take rolls. Have you ever been to those throwed rolls out back towards the south, you know, the big old rolls? Well, they, they would use like throwed rolls for napkins. And so they would wipe their hand on the bread and they would throw it on the ground. And here's Lazarus, who is this poor man. He's so poor and emaciated that he can't even get up to take care of himself. And the dogs have more sympathy than the rich man because the dogs are actually licking the wounds and the, that will actually facilitate healing. And the rich man has no concern for Lazarus who's laid out at his gate. And James, thinking back on that story that he heard his brother talk about, he said, be careful. If you think this is all there is, a time is coming when all of that will be gone. And we notice how the tables were turned in which the rich man didn't experience. He experienced poverty and eternity, self-destruction. It says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That literally means that, that you are a pig that just keeps on eating and eating and eating, not realizing that one day Charlotte's not going to be up there in the corner saying, wow, what a pig. One day, whap. You're going to be gone. You're fattening yourself for the slaughter. Leads to self-destruction. Condemned and murdered the righteous person. You don't, and again, some people say, well, some commentators will say he's talking about the fact that in Jewish, in, in Jewish parlance and, and belief is that if you withheld the wages of a worker, that was the same as killing them because you were depriving them of the food that they needed to live on. That's one way of interpreting it. But also we see, as we turn back to 1 Kings chapter 21, you think about Ahab and Jezebel, in which they wanted what Naboth had, and what they do, they go and they have him killed so they can acquire what he had. 
Same principle here. That is, that is the, the danger of money. It can. doesn't mean it will. It can corrode your soul. We talked that James was a contemporary of Paul. They knew each other. They had mutual admiration for each other, worked together. They were colleagues. Notice what Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, in this parallel passage. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, now listen real carefully to these words. And this is what James is talking about. Because I, I, I wish that I, because whenever you're publicly speaking, people get a little bit of what you say, and they fill in the blanks. And I want to say straight up, it's not sinful to be rich. It's not sinful to be rich. But what you do with that, with that what you, how you steward that, that is incredibly important. And we need to hear that today. And we're going to see in just a moment we're incredibly rich already. And we need to be very careful with what money can do to us. And so listen very carefully as he continues on. Those who desire to be rich, and for us it would be richer. We're already rich. For those of us who desire to be richer, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. It's, just, it's not necessary. And these people plunge themselves into ruin and destruction, all for the want of more. Verse 10, often misquoted passage of Scripture. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some, and here's the danger point, listen to this. Some have wandered away from the faith. That's why I think when James was talking, he was warning those within the congregation, the danger, have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves. Not somebody else. They literally pierce themselves with many unnecessary pangs. Continue, we skip down, 1 Timothy 6 to verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And again, here is Paul writing who knew, who knew James, and he's probably reflecting on what James wrote about, and he's saying, that was really good. I need to kind of comment that from a different angle but to rely on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We need to hear that. God has given us this world and all that there is for us to enjoy it in a holy, redemptive way. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is, I love this phrase, truly life. When money is in the right position in our life, we can experience life as God intended. Trusting in Christ is truly life. So we see the danger of money is it doesn't last and it can corrode our soul. So we need to be careful of that and recognize that as James was saying is our superior hope is in Christ. And that makes a difference both now and for all of eternity. And that's what James is talking about in this passage of Scripture. Friends, our hope is in Christ. It's not in our money because it can ruin us in so many different ways. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. That's that passage wedged in between the two that we just read. But as for you, O man of God, 
Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the things to pursue, not money. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our superior hope is in Christ. I was able to sit into a, a, a seminar this week with Michael Reeves, brilliant theologian, and I uh, left feeling so inadequate and so dumb. But I loved what he had to say, talking about justified. And as he was talking about that, as we talk about our hope here, if you just give me just a minute to net this out, our hope in Christ is superior. And it makes a difference now, right now, today, and in all of eternity. And he was saying that we oftentimes refer to justified as just if, if I had never sinned. And we move into the idea that all we've really gained from this relationship with Christ is forgiveness of sins. And we will all recognize I, I need to be forgiven. Some would say other people need to be forgiven more, but yeah, we all need to be forgiven. But we've gained much more than that. We have not just been forgiven we have been placed into the very righteousness of God. God has given us his righteousness, so we now have the righteousness of Christ. Think of it this way. If you were a prisoner on death row, and all of a sudden someone came by, the warden was some powerful person and said, here's the king, you're forgiven, you can go free, and you would run off in your freedom, not giving any thought to anything, you're just thankful that you're free, and you're not going to die. But then what if the king said, not only are you free, I want you to be my son to come live with me. All that I have is yours. And that's what we've gained in the righteousness of God. Not just that we've been forgiven, but we have gained, and we oftentimes think of just the eternal value, wealth of heaven and all that Christ has, but we've gained his very righteousness. The righteousness that makes a difference with the way that we handle our money. Many Christians living in the Western world are greedy. And we don't want to admit that because we are going to drop a 20 in the salvation can. We drop a little money in the box when we leave church. But for a lot of Christians, money still has a hold. And so the question as we come to the end of this is, do you need to reallocate your portfolio? Now, now if, if you're watching your investments, you're, you're watching the stock market, and you're wondering, do I, do I need to go this way, this way? Do I, need to, do I need to reposition, reallocate my portfolio? I think we as Christians need to ask the same question, not just from a financial standpoint, but, but literally, do we need to reallocate how we distribute our money is way too much coming our direction for selfish indulgence or do we need to figuratively just to let it go and trust God for it this coming Tuesday the world's population will cross 8 billion people the 8 billionth person will be, will be born sometime on Tuesday 
62% of those live on $10 a day or less. 62%, that's roughly 5 billion people. And when we look with that relative deprivation of other people and feel like we're not where we want to be financially, we recognize, first of all, that we are disproportionately extremely rich. There are more people in India who live beneath the poverty line. Look at this. More people in India who live beneath the poverty line than the entire population of the United States. And we can discount what James is saying, but maybe what we need to do is have a controlled burn. Maybe a controlled burn of our resources in which, you know what they do in, in, a, in a forest? It's, you burn down some of it so it won't burn down all of it. And maybe we need to look at what we're doing with our finances as individuals and corporately and look at generosity as teamwork. The world the language they speak is money. They may not understand it, but the language of the world is money. And when Christians collaborate in generosity, that speaks to the world that Christ makes a difference. See, it doesn't make any difference to the world for someone to give away 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 percent of their, that doesn't make any sense to them. And friends, in case you didn't notice, we're not making a whole lot of headway on speaking to the world. We have a parking lot that's more full over there than it is here. How I wish that all those kids that came to see baseball as the most important thing on Sunday were looking over the fence that they're hoping to hit a ball over and see a parking lot is completely filled with cars because Christ has transformed lives. I love playing baseball. In fact, I had a little snafu with my dad on whether or not I could play baseball on a Sunday afternoon when I was growing up. So I know the tension there. Not trying to make a bad statement. We're seeing religious liberty. That's religious liberty being played out. Okay, I'm done on that. <laughs> what are we going to do? How I long for us as individuals, corporately as a church, we're so generous. So this is not a statement to say we need to, we need to put more money in the bank. It's just a statement to say, are we where we need to be individually? You know, Matthew chapter 25 talks about living for that moment. We, we've, we've used that, you know, live for that moment. Jana is making these, these little challenge coins for us. It's an interesting term. It's called challenge coin, and which you'll be able to carry around in your pocket, and you'll be able to just pull that out and say, Am I really living for that moment with that dangerous weapon that I carry in my pocket? It's interesting, whenever you come to church, you sit on your money. You ever thought about that? Sometimes we protect our money as the most valuable asset. And, and so anyway, I just need to close it up. God wants us to understand and comprehend that trusting him is the most important thing of all. And some of you here maybe have never trusted Christ. Maybe you still are in the process of trusting your money more than anything else. But God loves you and he's created you to have a relationship with him. And that's worth more than anything money will ever buy. And our sinfulness, our sin separates us from having a relationship with God. And unless something changes, that will be our eternal lot. But thankfully, Jesus Christ can make us right with God. Not only does he make us right, but he gives us everything that is his. All we have to do is humbly repent of our sins and humbly 
trust in him as our Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, would you join me in this prayer and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this message, time of worship, I pray that your word would continue to resonate in each one of our hearts. Lord, even as we leave this place today, might we sense a change in our lives, especially for those that have never committed their life to you as Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day that they voice a prayer similar to this in which they recognize that a prayer like this simply puts them into the beginning point of a relationship with you and starts them on the journey of following after you the rest of their life. Might they say something like this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, you tell us in your word that your word doesn't return void. It accomplishes what you desire. I recognize the fallibility of my voice, my thoughts, my ideas, so I pray that you would correct anything that I have said that has been interpreted the wrong way. God, that we would recognize that our total confidence in you is what we need more than anything else. That we can make as much money as is humanly possible for your honor and glory, and there is nothing wrong with that. God, thank you. For those of you blessed, the capacity to do that. And we can have next to nothing and be greedy and self-indulgent and arrogant. So help us to realize it's not about how much money is in the bank, but what's inside the vault of our heart. So that no matter how much we make or how little we make, that we would truly surrender it all to you. Lord, thank you for allowing me to pastor a church in which I have seen the greatest generosity of my entire life. What a privilege to see that more generosity has come from this body of believers than anything I have ever seen in all of my life in all the churches that I have been affiliated with. Thank you for that DNA. And I pray that you would just continue to expand that exponentially in our lives, individually and corporately, that we would fully trust you with all that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have one little thing for you to do when you leave. Uh, COVID kind of eliminated the passing of the offering plates. I think that's probably been a good thing. It gives us opportunity to just quietly drop off our offerings in the box when we leave. There's two boxes out in there. I would encourage you just as a statement of your faith is to take, maybe it's just a dollar, maybe it's a nickel, but as you walk out, you just drop that into the box. Smallest thing that you have, not the biggest, the smallest thing that you have. Say, God, I'm symbolically just giving it all to you. And let there be a physical component to what is happening inside of you. A marker, a moment in which you can walk away and say, I remember when I gave it all to you. So let's stand together as we close out our service and worship and you respond as God leads you. Our deacons will be at the end of each one of these aisles and they'll pray with you. I'll be at the cross. 
You respond as God is leading you. We will keep our eyes on you. We will keep our eyes on you. So we can set our hearts on you. Lord, we will set consuming fire a burning holy flame with glory and freedom amen amen just a reminder we have children's choir that's meeting right after church and deacons you also have a deacons meeting that's going to be in the choir children's choir is in here today <laughs> 